Hey, welcome to a new season of the What Connects Us podcast. Today we're chatting with Kayla Kozan to learn how her nervous breakdown changed her life, her career path, and how she shows up for others. Thanks for joining us. I know you'll take a lot from this conversation. All right, we're back for a new season and six brand new episodes that explore stories of risk, transformation, heartbreak, resilience, triumph, everything in between, all of that good stuff. The guests that we have lined up for this season, I am so excited. These stories are going to be so captivating and meaningful and impactful, and I can't wait to share these with you. Since we launched back in October of 2020, we have seen five seasons 32 episodes, and get this, over 1 million minutes have been listened to of this podcast since we hit the airwaves. We're not stopping anytime soon, and we're kicking off the new season with a conversation that will hopefully diffuse some stigmas while showcasing a story of bouncing back in a big way. Let's talk about nervous breakdowns. It is a term that I think we're all quite familiar with as it's used pretty often in passing day-to-day conversations like, How many times have you said or have heard someone say, I'm about to have a nervous breakdown, and most of the time it's frustration about traffic, their kids, the rider games, or something pretty trivial. For as familiar as I think we are, and as much as we talk about it, I think we know very little of what a nervous breakdown actually looks like. Today's guest is going to tell us all about her experience navigating a nervous breakdown, how it led to her being diagnosed with a mental health disorder that I think we all have assumptions about, but just like a nervous breakdown, we actually know very little about, and she'll share the impact it had on her life in all sorts of ways, both personal and professional. Kayla Kozan joins us for a vulnerable conversation about how her nervous breakdown changed her life how it inspired her to make mindfulness meditation more accessible for others, and how it brought her back to Saskatchewan to become a founder of her very own startup, Peak Wellness. Peak Wellness has provided corporate wellness services to big name partners such as, just wait till you hear these names, Amazon, Netflix, HelloFresh, Microsoft. Ever heard of these guys? Kayla has such a gift of humanizing and normalizing some complex and big topics and just finds ways to make it relatable and accessible for anyone that she's having a casual conversation with. I cannot wait for you to hear her story. So let's start busting down some stigmas and get into the conversation. What connects us to Kayla? Let's find out. Kayla Kozan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mason. I'm so happy to be here. For sure. You are our first guest of season six, which is awesome. Um, And I was coming home from Saskatoon today in time for our interview. And as I'm driving, I was trying to think of... When was the first time I interacted with Kayla? Like, when did I first meet Kayla? And I think I narrowed it down, but do you remember? Definitely, like, a while ago. It would have been in school. Yeah, I'll just tell you. Okay. (laughs) Business 100. Okay. My my very first university class. I don't know if it was the same as yours. I'm sure it was. Yeah. And I remember coming in, and you were sitting with all of these kids from Miller. The high school. (laughs) Yeah. And our... Professor Wallace Lockhart took us through this quiz of like business 100, like just like things that you should know, nothing that was actually graded or anything like that, but just like a fun pop quiz about different things like that. And I remember as we were like going through it, you were answering so many of the questions. I was like, oh my gosh, this girl is so smart. (laughs) And then it came time for me to answer a question and it was about BP, like the oil company, but me coming from a small town. 
I thought it was Boston, Boston Pizza. pizza. <laughs> and I said, Boston Pizza. And everybody laughed thinking I made a joke, but I was authentically thinking that BP stood for Boston Pizza. Do you remember this? Did I laugh at you? <laughs> probably, but like that's what everybody was doing. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. That's probably like one of those examples of like, that's printed into your brain. Like everyone <laughs> yeah. must remember that about me. And then I'm sure I was so wrapped up in my own world about something that, no, I don't remember that. Totally. I remember saying it being, and people started laughing as like, as a joke, like, oh, you made a joke. And I'm like, oh no, it's, I just really like Bandera bread. I mean, like, everybody's <laughs> like, he's so funny. <laughs> totally. And I'm just like horrified. Yeah. Look at us now. Easy, 10 years later. Easy mistake. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years later. 10 years wild. later. You're doing some great things we're going to talk about. I still love Bandera bread, not much has changed there. I would argue that Boston pizza is the more relevant BP still. Agreed. That was like when the oil spill was happening, I yeah, think. Yeah, like that wasn't a good look for them anyway. <laughs> so I would say Boston pizza is the new BP. 100%. You were right. <laughs> I was just like seeing the future of what was going to happen. Awesome. So we'll, we'll talk about this as well, about um, university for you and things like that. But let's back up. Uh, let's jump in with a quick introduction. Who is Kayla Kozan? Give me some background on who you are so we can better understand your story. Yeah, so I'm Kayla. Um, I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan. That probably actually has a big impact on just my story in general. It does feel like a big part of my personality and identity. And um, I'm also the founder of Peak Wellness, uh, which is a corporate wellness company and now I work at Cultivator. Awesome. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up in Regina and how that kind of feeds into your story a bit. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Some of the things that I can think of, I mean, nothing was too notable um, in my story. Like I think it just it started out pretty standard. Like I didn't really have any major like highs or lows that really like stand out for me. I had a very privileged upbringing, so solid family background, um, you know, was able to kind of cruise through school. I, I liked school a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that kind of builds in. And then also like just being from Regina, I had a pretty like small and narrow view probably of like a lot of the world right. until I started venturing out. Um, but yeah, I think that's all part of kind of my identity. Awesome. And then in university, you did two years at the U of R, right? Before yep. you moved to, to Ontario, correct? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, Awesome. I remember too in university, you were like the golden child. <laughs> you were, because you were funny and nice. You were so smart. The profs loved you. You're beautiful. I remember everyone was like, oh, Kayla Kozan, she's the it girl around the Hill School of Business. It sounds like I paid you to say this stuff, Mason. <laughs> like I was like, this is a paid sponsorship, like to be on this podcast. Right. No, I'm just giving you some background. So tell me about um, the move to Ontario and what that was like, considering you said that you had a narrow view of Regina, things like that. Yeah. Now moving into Ontario, what was that transition like? I would say it was pretty wild. It was pretty drastic. So I went to um, Ivy, the business school, which was based at a Western university, which is like kind of like it was the university experience I'd seen in the movies that I honestly didn't know was real. Like okay. it was like frat parties and sororities like I actually thought that was like only in the movies right and I just remember like the atmosphere and the style and the like house parties and the keg parties and all that I thought that was just like yeah in college movies and yeah. so that was a big like wide open like eyes open experience yeah. seeing that there actually was schools that were like that Western's a massive massive university no one had like heard of or knew anyone from Regina ever. <laughs> like so many people just were like, oh my God, I've never met anyone from like 
the prairies even. And so they would ask me questions like, oh, my like cousin's friend lives in Saskatoon. Like, do you know her? And I'm totally. like, no. Yeah. <laughs> We've all, if you're from Saskatchewan, you've heard this before. Even if you're from Canada and you meet somebody outside exactly. of Canada. It's like, oh, I know Tim from Toronto. And you're like, well, no. And you say it like kind of politely, like, I'm sure she's nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, exactly. I don't know her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, it was like very, meeting people, um, especially who had been kind of coming, people came to Western from like all over the world. And so just like taking a little small town prairie girl and putting her probably in a place that is more representative of the whole world yeah. and yeah big eye-opening I mean I'd lived at home prior to that so it was like everything at once big right. like shock but yeah I learned a lot about myself pretty quick totally and what was like it was kind of like from the movies but it was a pretty intense competitive environment at Ivy correct yeah it's so interesting because like the people who were there had applied at like all these like tough like schools like they had like whole rosters of schools that they were trying to get into and we kind of were like oh we like kind of stumbled across this right or, yeah um a few of us are, were on a scholarship there and so it was very interesting i think it was a good perspective because at ivy some of the students who went there thought that that was like the world like that's yeah. a be all end all and then coming from saskatchewan where people are like, what's that? Where is that? Like, nobody really cares yeah. about it. Or like, not yeah. as much as like those of us that went there. I think it was a good perspective to totally. have both. That's the beauty about Saskatchewan. It's so humble, right? Like, not only is it humble in how we talk about ourselves and other people, but then when you go off to Ontario, go to this prestigious business school and you come home, people are like, what's that? Like, yeah, it, it humbles like, you as well. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, totally. Awesome. So shortly after convocation, you started working at a tech startup. So tell me what that was like. Yeah, I actually in between had a little stint in a very like corporate environment. It's so such, such a short little stint that you probably can't even find evidence of right. it anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> but I LinkedIn did profile Sun Life, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if it's worth mentioning the name of it. Anyways, I yeah. went to Sun Life for a short little stint. Sure. Which was great news to my grandparents. They were like, oh my God, what a great company. <laughs> like, that must be amazing. Right. Like, there must be such good benefits. And um, that definitely is like that role in that company. Like, it works really well for a lot of people, but that sure. was like not the cloth that I was cut from so yep. I had a little short stint there my friends really joke about it now so like if people have like job opportunities that come up because I think I was there for three months maybe like sh maybe less right. and so like we'll be like helping people decide like oh should you take the leap should you do this and people will be like well you can just sun life it and just yeah. do it for three it's months a verb. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember at the time being so concerned because I had heard in university kind of like I feel like what's just like a like old wives tale kind of is like if you don't spend a year at a company it's going to look so bad on your resume and like no one will hire you I really had that in my head but I was just like so unhappy in a corporate environment yeah. that I ended up yeah leaving after just a few months and what was it like about the corporate environment that didn't align to you um, I think for me, I like a lot of like variety and maybe like kind of like risk in the different things that I do sure. and that's like like the most stable thing you can do. So right. maybe even at a different part of my life, it would have been like a good fit. Yeah. Um, yeah, just what I was working on wasn't really like lighting me up. Um, and so, yeah, I just never felt super corporate, I right. guess. How um, did your grandparents take the news? Oh, I still don't know if they like fully understood that I left Sun Life. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my grandma might like still think I'm there. Sure, at Christmas. <laughs> she might like tell her like, yeah, her friends like, yeah, she's, at, she's been at 
it's on like for 10 years now <laughs> for sure yeah, at christmas it's like yeah grandma it's great like great it's still benefits. going good yeah, yeah. it's awesome, awesome. Great benefits. hopefully she's not listening to this podcast <laughs> otherwise she's in for a shot be a lot of questions yeah. <laughs> yeah awesome so then you made that move that startup tell me about it yeah that was just such a good i mean it changed probably the trajectory of so many things for me and so yeah i moved to a tiny little company we were working out of an attic in toronto we did not have an office a proper office right um and so yeah it was like the second employee there and that was just such a better fit for my personality i was having just so much exposure to all sides of the business and tech startups can be as you know like wild and like a crazy grind and it wasn't uh like that they had like as far as tech startups go we had a pretty good work-life balance i would say and so the transition was to work that i cared way more about um and something i just felt like super passionate about right and this was at ideal yeah you got it yeah awesome so what was that like lifestyle switch like for you from not just going from a place where cushy benefits and a corporate like nine to five sort of situation to that that shocking lifestyle kind of switch what was that like for you yeah it's a pretty stark contrast I would say like I kind of joke about it at Cultivator too like there's no dress code it's like almost the opposite yeah. like you don't want to be like overdressed right. <laughs> so yeah, I had like bought all these corporate clothes for sun life and yeah just way more casual and then just probably just access to all these like different systems. Like when I was at Sun Life, I was on like, I don't know, Microsoft Outlook and all these like older things. And then when I switched to um, Ideal, it was just like the most modern version of every single thing. And we just, I really felt like we were working on something that was like really making a change, really making a difference and things were moving fast. And it was just like much better for me. Yeah, it's easy to hit that passion button almost. Yeah, 100%. So Take me to the summer of 2014 and around six months after you started working at Ideal, uh, you experienced a medical emergency. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is where the story gets a little wild. So I'll keep it uh, the short version. Just let me know if you want me to like dive into any specific part. But yeah, it was around um, the summer. I was kind of just living my normal life again. Like nothing was too notable. There weren't necessarily like early warning signs, I wouldn't say. Um, But for a period of about two weeks, I just started to feel like I had like unlimited energy. I just like barely needed to sleep. I was sleeping like maybe three, four hours a night. Mm. I just thought I had uh, like every idea that popped into my head was like brilliant. Like in my mind, I was like, this idea is going to change the world. Everything was very, very exciting. Um... But I was also getting increasingly like irritable. So I guess I would say my energy was like super high, but I was also like feeling like I was trying to move really fast. And so even small things that would like slow you down, let's say like, I don't know, someone's like walking slow around you or you feel like someone's telling a story slowly. You'll just be like, ah, you got to do it faster. Like it's this kind of feeling of like, uh, I don't know, like immediacy that I just was like. I can do everything so fast. I don't even need to sleep anymore. All my ideas are so good. That's like the best way I can describe it. And that probably happened for about two weeks. You can imagine somebody's like not sleeping properly um, and just like on this like wild ride. And I started to kind of near the end of those two weeks, I would say disconnect from reality a little bit is the best way to describe it. So like, yeah, the people that noticed the most were actually my coworkers because that's who you spend the most time around. My roommate noticed a little bit, but we didn't really cross paths that much. Like we like had kind of like crazy different lives in Toronto. So the people that saw me the most by far were my coworkers. And so they kind of started to notice I had like no appetite at all. I barely felt like eating just certain things that like 
if you're close enough to someone, you'd be like, ah, oh, that's a little odd. Right. Nothing to like really like ring the alarm bells, but just to be like, hmm, that's kind of weird. Or she's never said anything like that before. Sure. Um, and so that all culminated with a pretty like chaotic one day event of things, I would say. I had woke up around 6 a.m. in the morning and I just was like, I'm going to go to work right now. That was like my thought, which I don't do. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who knows me is like, she's like a 930 girl. (laughs) So very weird. Um, And yeah, I had like what I would describe it now looking back are like feelings of extreme paranoia. So thinking that like just kind of offhand things that like my boss had said, like a random thing, like he didn't say, you know, uh, have a good day in his email. So like I'm going to get fired. So little things like that really feeling like crazy so I started to like message my close friends I remember messaging my parents the night before being like I don't know what's going on but like I think I'm going to be fired tomorrow like Mm. I'm like supposed to have this meeting in the morning and um yeah I just I'm going to be fired and like my parents kind of being like oh like why do you think that I'm like you don't understand like just like really kind of like no one I had this feeling that no one could understand what I was trying to explain and so I had total confidence in what I thought but it was like very rooted in paranoia. So I get to the office and then um, my bosses came in and they were just, they had no clue. Like, I think I had just said to them, like, can you meet with me in the morning? And so they had no clue what this meeting was going to be about. And they sat down and probably noticed I also had no clue what the meeting was going to be okay. about. Like they sat down and I so was So you called like, the meeting? Yeah. Okay. I think I just was like, uh, can I talk to you guys tomorrow morning? Um, again, this kind of just like wraps in of like me thinking they were going to fire me. So I was going to like get ahead of it. And really this is all coming more or less from nowhere. Like there was no, like nothing leading up to this. It wasn't like I was having a tough time at work. I tell them like we sit down and they're kind of like looking around and I'm like super emotional. I like start crying in the office and I'm like, I think I'm just really tired. Like, I just think I need this day off. And they were like, sure, no problem. (laughs) They were like equally as probably just like didn't know what to do. It was very odd behavior. It was a long weekend, I remember. So they were like, and I was supposed to be going to Chicago that weekend um, for like a trip. And so especially my boss is like knowing me, knowing I like lived in Toronto, like more or less by myself. And they kind of were like, are you still going to go to Chicago? And like, can you just let us know on Monday what's what you're going to do? Like they never pressured me or anything. It wasn't like you better come in on Monday. They just were more from a caring place and place probably of concern of like can you just keep us in touch and I was like yep that's what I'll do and then this like all escalates super super quick from here so then I leave the office but all this is like totally some of it's like kind of blurry to me so I leave the office but I've actually left my phone at work my cell phone unfortunately intentionally or unintentionally totally unintentionally and so I leave, I think I have like the day off for the, uh, the day and I'm like still not, I'm just absolutely out of sorts, like emotionally, um, just don't know what to do. And so I start walking home and then between the time of like leaving the office and getting home, the paranoia was so strong that I was convinced my bosses had stolen my phone. That was oh. like in my mind, nothing could be more clear than they had stolen my phone. So I get back to my apartment, I use the phone from the concierge and I call my parents and I, my dad sometimes like recounts the story of like talking to me and maybe the things that he would have done differently. But I just was like, I think when he retells it, he says that I said like, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Like, I don't feel safe, but like, I'm going to go back to the office and then I'll like update you. And he kind of, this all came out of nowhere. So he's like, what's going on? And he will always say, I think that one of his biggest, and I would never think this because it was just so chaotic, but he was like, 
I just really would have tried to stay on the phone with you and probably oh. told you to go straight to the hospital if you could. Yeah. But I'm just like so erratic, like doing like no one could control me at that point is the best way to describe it. Was he thinking that something was happening? By or? this time, like there's enough like red flags, right? Like I had said the night before I'm gonna be fired tomorrow and just like the ways that I was even the texts I was sending to my family, they're just like a little off, right. like just odd. Um, probably like a, you could see some of that paranoia coming through. Yep. And so I end up, I have a email from my boss that says like, uh, hi, can you please come back to the office? We have your phone. I just want to make sure that you're safe. Like, please respond to this. But I of course didn't see it cause I didn't have my phone, but I walk back to the office and in between this time in like 15 minutes, my dad's called my mom, my mom's called my boss and they just say, we don't know what's going on, but when she gets back, please take her to the hospital. Like something's oh. going, something's like really going wrong. And so that's actually exactly what happened. I would get back to the office. I like switch from being like mad at my bosses because I thought they were going to steal my phone yeah. to like just absolute breakdown. Just like I just remember collapsing almost in a chair and just crying and just being so confused. Do you and remember as this was happening, as you're walking back to the office? And do you remember that? Kind of. Um, I remember some of the thoughts I had and like how much conviction I hold in them. Like I remember just thinking like every thought I had, like I didn't question it. Like it was so clear to me that my bosses had stolen my phone. Like there was no, you wouldn't have been able, there's nothing you could have said that would like change my mind about that. So I, I remember having kind of like the conviction, but there's like aspects and areas of the day that I don't remember. Gotcha. So what happens next? So my boss calls 911 and then I went to the hospital emergency room with my boss. And so I just remember him being like very calming. Like I was obviously like not in trouble or anything. They yeah. were just equally as worried about me. I remember the like paramedics asking me a few questions and like, I'm sure based on my answers, they probably were like, okay, like we kind of have an idea of right. what's going on here. And so, yeah, I went into the psych ward with my boss. I think we were there for a few hours. Um, and that kind of like kicked off this chain of events. And so my parents flew to Toronto the same day they were able, like, it was like, that's how chaotic it was. Yeah. It was like, we got to do something. No one knew what was going on. Least of all me. Like I was like, just, yeah, just really not in touch with reality. That's the best way to put it. What were you feeling? Like as you are in the hospital, the psych ward, are you scared? Are you confused? I'm confused and I'm confused why like people aren't like understanding these wild theories I had, like I'm yeah. explaining some of these things that like are so true, could not be more true to me. And like medical professionals being like, okay, like, and like yeah. making notes, like that's kind of the feeling was like, I don't know, like feeling like, why don't they believe me? Or like no one, if someone else could see this, they would see that I'm right. And yeah. like these people just don't understand. So you're frustrated while carrying over that sense of urgency that That's you were feeling. That's a good word for it. Yeah, frustrated. Yeah. Like I'm like kind of explaining the stories. They were asking me questions and I was like just explaining my answers and almost feeling like they're not believing me, but they should. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> like really, really confident. And are you paranoid about the doctors or anything mm, too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is um, very, very common. So um, you can imagine like a lot of these thoughts that were popping into my head come from like pop culture and movies. Yeah. Like if you think about some kind of like dystopian where there's like, I don't know, someone's being like put into a psych ward and yeah. what you think of from movies, that is kind of the perception that I went in with of like, I actually don't need to be here. You guys are wrong right. and no one's believing me. And like, I don't think I should have to like take this medication and like the stuff you see from movies. Interesting. Very interesting. So what comes next? So uh, I was in there with 
my boss for a long time and I end up getting really, really tired. So they like interview me, they interview my boss, my roommate ends up coming, they ask her a few questions. But this is very common in psych wards where they're just like, they're too busy and they're too full. And so the questions they'll ask you are like, are you, what they're trying to determine is, is there a risk you're gonna hurt yourself or hurt someone else? And if not, a lot of times they have to discharge you. They just don't have their like resources. And so I actually was discharged despite like having like some wild thoughts of what was going on. And like, they're just, it just made sense, I guess, for me in theory to come back about three days later. And I believe I had a a small dose of medication, like a calming medication. But they're releasing you knowing that your parents and you have a support system. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been another aspect. Like I think my mom was able to get there uh shortly after but I was like in the care of my roommate I guess they didn't like just like throw me out of the hospital but um yeah and I think the advice was to come back three days later interesting so do you remember like your parents showing up and what you felt in that moment like it must be shocking when your parents fly across the country to Mm -hmm. to see you yeah I think there was just so much confusion around what was going on and so I actually ended up not waiting the three days I had to go back like I think the next morning or the next afternoon okay. with my mom, just cause like the things I was saying to my mom, my mom was like, oh, I don't think we should wait on this. Oh, <laughs> it yeah. was still some of the same like paranoia and it didn't really uh, go away. Gotcha. That must've been so scary for your parents. I know it was. Yeah, yeah for definitely. sure. So what, what happens next? So we go back again and then um, kind of, I feel like I'm telling the same story. My thoughts haven't really changed on a lot of these things uh, to the, what I now know is like the psychiatrist there in this, Um, psychiatry team and then my parents had a tough decision to make which was like she needs to be in care potentially for like 30 days so where are you gonna do that Mm -hmm. so they had to decide do we keep her in Toronto where she lives I don't know they move there for a month like I don't even know how that option would have worked or do we fly her back to Regina immediately just like try and get her on the plane try and like get her there without too much uh pushback and then go into the psych ward in Regina and that's exactly what I did gotcha do you remember being like on the plane? Yeah, like there's some things, aspects that like I hope I can only think of them as like being funny now, like looking back. Right. But like I'm sure at the time my parents were like, oh, my God, we just got to get her to Regina. Right. I remember at the airport someone asking me, did I pack my own bags? Like, you know how they like ask that like randomly? Yeah. And I said no. Oh. <laughs> Which is really weird. Like right. they almost shouldn't have let me on the plane. Like, right. But that was just kind of like where my headspace was at I was just like yeah it's it's hard to describe but um I still was like pretty sure I was right about everything and pretty sure there was like a big mix-up like I really shouldn't be needing to go to the hospital but I guess I my parents were able to uh convince me somehow that that was like the right decision awesome and do you remember like cluing in when you were back in Regina like what's happening that what's happening to me why aren't I in my my habitat in, in Toronto it gets super blurry for me here for a while. Um, there's like a lot of medication that kind of gets involved, especially mm-hmm. if you're like feeling stressed and paranoid and anxious. And so there's a couple, I would say like a couple days that are like, I don't remember them really at all. Yeah. And that would have been kind of like going to the hospital in Regina. And then uh, I would honestly say it took me like a week to get out of this uh which I now know was um, mania. Mania. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you're kind of coming to terms with what's happening with you as you're starting to come out of this fog or this mania. What are you feeling in these moments? Yeah, it's it's like such a uh, interesting thing you never think you're going to go through. Um, To describe how I was feeling, 
there was like a little bit of like a sadness or like almost a grief attached to it maybe because I think once it sunk in that I was like the maybe uh, depth of what had happened and like that it was pretty severe and kind of just maybe having this realization of like I'm not going back to Toronto anytime soon like this is going to be a big just a big hurdle in my life and I was I think 22 around that age so of course I was like my life is over right. <laughs> like yeah. just like any like the idea of like being off work for six months or a year in my mind at that time was an eternity like, yeah because you're a young professional mm-hmm. you are a new grad mm-hmm. you are coming from this competitive environment from ivy where you're yep. go 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 you're at a startup where it's hustle 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 and the thought of having to pause for a little bit, you're feeling like you're going to be behind. I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. life is passing me by. Which totally. we have the perspective now to be like, okay, like, you took a year off work. <laughs> totally. <It's fine. laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. So, how long did it take for you to receive, like, a diagnosis about what's going on? I was pretty lucky in that sense. There's a lot of areas that I would attach to kind of uh, luck, uh, the healthcare system working for me, and privilege throughout my story. So, my story is, like fairly speedy I had a um proper diagnosis within about three weeks I would say and so that's not the experience that a lot of people have a lot of people will go like years with like misdiagnosis and like trying to really like calibrate I think because of the severity I got the help that I needed really quickly and so I had a, a proper diagnosis within about three weeks I would say I also the symptoms like now that I go back and I learn way more about bipolar disorder my symptoms were like textbooks. So the things that were like so scary to my boss and my parents, my psychiatrist, who I was like under the care of, he's like, oh, that's nothing. Like, you oh, know, right, like the right. craziest ideas that I had in these theories and the things I'm telling my parents where my parents think I have like brain damage or I'm like on drugs or something. Yeah. Our psychi- like my psychiatrist was like, oh yeah, that's all. Yeah, no problem. That's <laughs> yeah. just like, Seen it, before. it really is textbook. Just um, another Tuesday. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like he's like, it'll be fine. No worries. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what was it like? You mentioned a bipolar disorder dis- diagnosis. What was it like to have a name or a label attached to what you were going through? I think my opinion has like changed over time. In the short term, that felt very scary to me. I think we have a couple like major mental illnesses that like, I don't know where this tier system came from, but yeah. there seems like some that are like, Oh, everyone's anxious and depressed, but bipolar is like a bad one. Right. You know, yeah. if you're bipolar, that's like one of the bad ones. Um, and I think that like we're changing the way that we like know and yeah. understand that over time. But I remember thinking, um, you know, this isn't good. This isn't like really what I thought was going to happen. Ideal. Yeah. Exactly. I think it too comes from pop culture. What we were 100%. talking about before you watch criminal minds or like yes. a horror movie. And it's always like the, the person that is, sociopath or something like that is because they have bipolar or yeah, something that's like, like that the way that like the mystery shows end, they're like oh she was bipolar the whole time oh, like, makes sense. <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly yeah. lots of misinformation about um those like major mental illnesses so i would say that was like a bit of a reckoning for me in the beginning yeah now especially because it was a proper diagnosis and treatment uh, I think it was pretty lucky to get that diagnosis. It got me the treatment and down the right path of the proper treatment um, really, really quickly. Awesome. So if you had to define bipolar disorder in like a textbook term or things like that, what, how would you define it? Yeah. So there's actually bipolar one and bipolar two that operate. Uh, they have some similarities and some differences. So I have bipolar one and the thing that marks bipolar one my understanding is uh, severe mania and the fact that you're hospitalized for it. So it usually is that like, that was pretty textbook, like the mania um, that like 
disillusionment and um, that high energy and all of that that marks bipolar one for most people and so that's a manic episode and then you also have depressive episodes so that's where you have that like deep clinical depression Mm -hmm. that's what made up bipolar one for me bipolar two doesn't have as severe of mania so it's called hypomania so you may not be like you may not really recognize it or won't be recognized in the same way and you may not even be hospitalized for it, which is why a lot of people with bipolar 2 have a harder time getting right. a proper diagnosis. Yeah. Hypomania, the like mania and hypomania at its foundation, those symptoms are actually like highly celebrated by society. You are like high energy. You don't need to sleep. All your ideas are so good. You're so the true. life of the party. Like, yeah. So there's really times where people go without like the proper diagnosis or care because it's like you really can like float around and if you're not you don't have anyone close enough to you to like recognize some of those signs you can float around um you know experiencing hypomania for a really long time um before maybe it like rings the alarm bells for people mm-hmm. it feels like it can manifest into addictions pretty easily absolutely too, if you're not yeah. careful yeah. that's a really good um yeah that's a really good point another aspect of that is risk-taking behavior so yeah. um that can be things like Partying, drugs, alcohol. Interestingly, it can be spending money. So a lot of people will um, like really go into a ton of debt. Uh, That was an interesting symptom I had as well. Not that I was like racking up much credit card debt, but I would describe it as a like anything I was buying. Instead of buying one, I would buy like four. It was interesting. Like it was just like (laughs) you're like I do that all the time. I go to Costco. I'll be like I'm gonna get through this once. I'm gonna enjoy the second one too. So. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, you could be like spending money. Um, yeah, just increased risk. Uh, yeah, taking maybe, you know, taking drugs you've never taken just seems like a fine idea to right. you yeah. for the first time. Um, and so then you also have those depressive episodes. And so that's kind of what marks bipolar too. Interesting. So why, why do you think it was triggered at that time for you, the, that mania? Was it the stress of work? What do you think kind of sparked it at that time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I'll ever really have the answer for it. Um, And I don't even know that medically it's well understood. Um, It can be sparked by a major life event. Uh, It could be like grief, like the loss of someone, incredible stressors or pressures. Um, I think there's also aspects. So what I was experiencing um, during the mania where I was really not in touch with reality, which I would say was probably like two days of that, that's called psychosis. And so there's a number of different illnesses that experience psychosis. And I think there's drug related uh, psychosis potentially. So we don't totally understand it. There wasn't a major life event for me, but I would say I probably was just like taking on stress, kind of just like stacking it on uh, in different ways. Totally makes sense. How can we best support someone we know that is going through this, is brave enough to tell people like what their diagnosis is, from a day-to-day standpoint, as well as like receiving that, what what's from your perspective, what's some things that we can do to best support? Yeah, that's such a good question. And um, I, again, I had like such a great support system around me and that is critical to your recovery, I think. Um, one of the things you can do, one thing I notice in advice that I usually give to people is just like asking open-ended questions. So before, especially like even with me, I was in support groups with people with different mental illnesses that I didn't know anything about. And so before you kind of jump to conclusions about what you think you might know about, you know, schizophrenia or OCD or anything, just like asking them, like, what did it feel like? Kind of just like what you're doing to me right yeah. now. Like, what did it feel like when that happened? And just getting them talking. Um, 
and letting them know, like, no matter what their answer is, that doesn't change, like, how you perceive them or your friendship or your relationship. You're just like, I'm trying to gather more information about this. Very interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's just having an authentic conversation, leaving judgment at the door, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it like to come home? Yeah, it felt like it was like, again, like early 20s, I thought I knew everything there was to know (laughs) about my life and like how it was all going to pan out. And so it was a big shock. It threw a big wrench into those plans I had for myself. Um, I came home and I would say the mania or any symptoms of mania subsided probably uh, over the course of like maybe a month or so. And then you kind of level out. And I had this like, of course, just like overconfidence. Like some of the things that my psychiatrist would tell me is like, you know, you might have to be off work for like a year. And I was like, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, other people might have to be, but not me. I'm going to be back in three months. Like, right. For for what? I don't know. I just like thought that like these timelines that everyone experiences that I would like do it faster or something. <laughs> well, you're a high achiever was, like too, an overachiever. Right? Like I was yeah. trying to overachieve at my mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'll uh, be faster. <laughs> totally. But it's like when you think about it from like breaking an ankle, once those initial like pain, that pain goes away, you're like, oh yeah, I'm getting there faster than yeah. everybody else. Totally. So it makes sense from a physical as well as a mental comparison. Totally. And then my experience after that was also very textbook. I know now in hindsight where it kind of leveled off and then I was ready to like attempt to go back to work after about three months okay like as like as far along as like getting the go-ahead from my psychiatrist even though he kind of was like I don't (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it but like you can going back to my apartment flying back to Toronto and then it was like the Monday I was going to go back to work um I think on a part-time basis and I remember that is when like the depression hit and it just there was like there was just no way. I just like, I, I had to totally change my plans, which I was so embarrassed about. Like yeah. I was so embarrassed to tell my like boss, like I thought it was going to be back, but like now I'm not. And I don't even know how long it's going to be this time. And I was so embarrassed at the time. Did you feel um, like you were letting them down? Totally. And like letting myself down. And again, that was like just it showing that it was out of my hands and right. it wasn't going to my like well-laid plan it wasn't like following along with the timeline I had um and I also had some like I felt like being off work was so bad like it was just so there's such a stigma against being off work that I was like oh this looks bad like I'm pretty sure they won't like they don't have to hold my role anymore like they're I I don't know that I'll even have that job anymore for sure um, I remember seeing you when you were back in, in Regina and I remember being like, oh, what 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 brings you back into town? <laughs> Do you feel like, did you feel that like, oh my gosh, people are going to be asking me questions why I'm yeah, home. What was yeah. that like? Was it, was it, did you feel shame when you were telling Absolutely. people or did you tell people initially? What did you do? I think I mostly told people, um, again, because I had such a strong support system, I was pretty comfortable telling most people, um, maybe like left out some of these like bigger details or like the things that I thought were more extreme yeah I think most people I told um but probably not to the depth of like what I'm comfortable sharing now I just was kind of like oh I don't know I'm struggling I'm just taking some time off work do you remember when you felt comfortable enough to like accept what was happening where you could share it with other people and what that moment was like for you or did it kind of was it more gradual It was gradual and it took a long time. I would say it took a year. Right. And I think that's what happens with any stigma, right? Like you almost start like dipping your toes into into the pond and then you start like wading in there a little bit more. And each time you do, it kind of removes the weight a little bit. Yeah. And you tell more people and you know, like you'll tell some people and then especially in a smaller town, you know, there's kind of like 
the grapevine and lots of people will just find out. Um, and I think like even us in the generation that we're in right now, even though this is like coming up on, uh, you know, 10 years ago, yep. we are easy. I think it's easier for us to share that than like say even our parents, you know, 30 years ago. So right. I think we're in an environment where we can share it. And that's something I noticed with my support groups as well as the younger people, the people around my age had like at least told their closest friends, their families were aware, but some of the older people who are in the same support group as me, they're maybe learning that they have bipolar or any mental illness for the first time. There was no one in their life that they felt they could tell. Totally. Which is so sad. It's, it's so sad. And it's, yeah, it's just something that the support groups was fascinating because it was different people from all different walks of life, all different mental illnesses, all different experiences. And everyone had different levels of feeling like they could share it. With For sure. People. What I love through as this conversation is going, you've, you've marked your privilege a couple of different oh, times, yeah. like family support system, yep. employer that was empathetic enough to understand what was going on. Yep. So you can see why if people don't have that support system or that privilege. Oh, why? there's so many aspects. Like the other things, even financially, I had financial supports. Like this wasn't going to bankrupt me. I wasn't a breadwinner for a family. It yep. wasn't like I was going to get like, I would be quitting my job or laid off. I had long-term disability. I had short-term disability. Um and just, I think there's a lot of privilege in getting uh, recognized, having your symptoms recognized and being taken seriously. Yeah. And a lot of people um, in marginalized communities don't have that. For sure. There's like yeah. so much research on it where like they don't get the care that they need. They don't get their concerns taken care of. So yeah, I, th my story is just personally like dripping in privilege and um, yeah, that's a big, it's a big thing. And I think we're starting to recognize it more. For sure. So you had a year off. What was mm -hmm. that like to recalibrate? You had that that um, time where you attempted to go back to work, but you're like, mm -hmm. I need to take some time for me. Yeah. What was that time to recalibrate like for you? Yeah, I mean, that part um, then, so like the kind of where this was textbook for me was after the mania, I was kind of almost balancing out with like the depression. And that's just uh, classic depression symptoms. I mean, you have no confidence in yourself, no energy. I was so tired. Some of the medications I was on, like, they really take months to adjust to. Yep. I would be, like, after, like, I'd have supper with my parents. And then, I don't know, do you know what, like, a little happy light is? Like, a, yep. um, I know they have a proper name, like, a sad, like, for seasonal affective yep. disorder. Yep. Um, I would sit by that starting at, like, 6 p.m. to try and help keep me awake. Otherwise, I could go to bed at 7 and sleep till, like, 9 maybe. Right, yeah. So there's, like, just adjustments, a lot of adjustments to the medication. Um, I had, like, lots of therapy support at that time. There was an outpatient program. It's called at the hospital. So a program I was going through there. So I would say like of that year, you know, it took me like three to six months to get back to just kind of like normal life. Right. Um, and I was receiving really good care uh, and then started to learn some of these like tools and strategies. The thing about a mental illness that I think like makes it less scary and something I wish I knew earlier on is like no matter what mental illness you're dealing with, there are professionals that have been training for like 20 years to deal with it. Yep. And there's therapies for everyone. Different things work for different people. But I guess I felt once I learned that there were like strategies out there and that this was going to be manageable, it was just way less intimidating. For sure. And that maybe happened after about six months. So then maybe the last like six months felt a little more positive. Yeah. Once you feel like you aren't this anomaly that yes. has never yes. seen, like people have never seen this before, you feel like, 
there is either like a blueprint or something like that that will help you out. Yeah, it makes you much less intimidated for sure. So what was going back to work like? Was that scary again? It was very, like it was, my employer made it so comfortable for me, as comfortable as possible. I went back on a part-time basis. I don't totally remember now, but I think I went back doing like, I don't know, four hours a day for two weeks and then six hours for three weeks or something. So it was a gradual return, which was helpful because I was so tired most of the time. Um, because my employer was so understanding, I wouldn't say it was like scary in that like people would be judging me or anything. Mm -hmm. I did have a lot of brain fog as a symptom of one of my medications and I was kind of embarrassed around that. So I think I was like, like sometimes it would just take me longer to think of things like answers or remember people's names or like things like that. And I like was embarrassed around that. I guess I didn't want anyone to think that like I wasn't good at my job anymore. Yeah. Um, but like my employer made it so probably as comfortable as possible. Um, but that was my biggest fear was like, are people going to think I couldn't do this job as right. well as I could before? Another thing that happens a lot with people when they're first getting a diagnosis, I mean, in like the first five years of their diagnosis is they can be like trialing and experimenting with lots of different combinations of medication mm-hmm. and they can all have these different side effects. It's like, it's so wild, all the side effects. These right. ones can, like, make you lose weight. These can make you gain weight. This, you'll be more tired. You won't be tired. Yeah. Like, all these opposing symptoms. Yep. And a lot of the more complex cases of mental illness or major mental illness have combinations of medications. Mm-hmm. So, it's so true. Like, it could be someone could be five years out from their diagnosis and still experimenting. And so, yeah, they can have the, any of those symptoms can come up and it's not on a timeline. For sure. So, did you feel more equipped to to take on work here like some t- tips and tricks like mindfulness I'm thinking of where you yeah. did you feel like you could utilize that in your toolbox anytime to be more aware of what you're feeling in that moment things like that 100 percent, yeah I felt like from just different forms of therapy I had this toolkit that I didn't even know a I could access or b was important like right. now I know just like these are the things I think we're getting better, but I think these are the things we should be taught, you know, in elementary school. And so I just felt like I had maybe access to this toolkit. And, and I will say, I think it's important to note that the number one tool in my toolkit cornerstone was medication. Right. So everything else on top of that was like supplementary and has benefits, but without the medication, like, I don't know, I guess I don't feel like I could like mindfulness my way out of, uh, bipolar disorder (laughs) (laughs) so it really really helps but I do want to acknowledge or just note that like medications are big cornerstone for lots of these things so like mindfulness can help and all these tools can help um but yeah so I was aware of this toolkit um you know aware of the medications that were working for me um and yeah I think I had a better perspective as well on that like work no matter how much you love your job is not the not like your entire life and that your mental health is this asset or liability and you need to take care of it. And I just learned that maybe the hard way. (laughs) Right. Totally. So you hear mindfulness talked about a lot, especially in the startup community, even more thanks to you, I think in a lot of ways too, (laughs) especially here at Cultivator. So tell me what is mindfulness and how, how can that be practiced? Yeah, one of the easiest ways I like to think of mindfulness, the definition is paying attention to the present moment on purpose and without judgment. Yeah, That's like the working definition. Um, But what I like to think of it as or describe it is mindfulness is when you're in the present moment. 
And the reason that that's valuable is a lot of the suffering that we have or go through as humans is because we're living in either the past or the future. So true. So the past is like rumination. That's where you start to see like uh, symptoms of depression, getting really stuck on one thought, getting stuck in a rut, being like, why did I say that stupid thing at a meeting? Like that was so embarrassing like six years ago. Right, <laughs> so right. those things are really get, yeah. like stuck on things. <laughs> Um, and then living in the future usually looks like worrying. So you're like, what if all the, what if A, B, C, D, E happen? Uh, and that's where you start to see those symptoms of, uh, anxiety and overwhelm. So the present moment is just a nicer place to be. It's hard to get to a lot of times. We spend so much time in the past and the future, but mindfulness, I would describe as the present moment where it's just a nicer place to be. (laughs) For sure. And people listening may be thinking like, oh, well, I know I don't really worry about like a bomb is going to hit tomorrow. That could be as little as, oh, I have to go to work tomorrow. What am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat for lunch? Little worries that can can affect how you are showing up in that present moment. Absolutely. And I think of some of my worries, I mean, these are still like deeply rooted. Like I, I wouldn't say I've like gotten rid of them, but I have worries about like, Things that are so far in the future, I'm like, what if my kids are bullied? (laughs) Like, you know, like those things that are like so far away. I'm like, what am I going to do if like my kid is on social media too much? I'm like, don't have kids, not married. (laughs) Like these things are like so far down the road. And like, but like those things, yeah, they can be taxing on you, especially all the different versions of worries you have. (laughs) Oh, I remember I was like. What if I'm 45 and I'm upset that I've never ran a half marathon before? (laughs) And I'm like, well, I better run a half marathon next month. I'm like, I'm not prepared for this, but I'm like, I have to seize the moment, right? Like, just the weird things As you think of. As if, like, your 45th birthday is, like, next week. Exactly. Like, yeah. 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 Humans, were weird. We have, like, weird things, like, weird anguish we put ourselves Especially through. Especially on mortality, like, the weirdest things you think yeah. about. Yeah. And it, we laugh about it, but we, I guarantee anybody listening right now is like, uh, I've had thoughts like this, 100%. too. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you worked um, with Ideal for five more years. Yep. And then... Something exciting happened where you started to really think of some ways that you can take mindfulness and the things that you that you learned and offer it in a professional sense. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say there was like a, a like light bulb moment for me where I was like, I'm gonna start a company and do this. But it kind of just showed. I just started to see over time, and I was noticing it. When I got back to work, um, a little bit with my colleagues, but a lot of like my peers kind of in those early first years of their career. So they're in kind of the first five years of their career. They're working crazy hours. Their jobs are super stressful. And just noticing that like really I felt like there's this gap of like 45 years worth of people in the workforce, like the bulk of the workforce who have never been taught any stress management techniques, never been taught like how to build boundaries between themselves and their work or any of these well-being practices. And so for me, that was kind of just like over time, I was like, I think there's some people who could benefit from this Um, just in the way that I did so much. Like so many of these tools that I learned in therapy or through, um, I actually had a mindfulness-based therapy course. And so that's called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is where I started to get like a lot of these tools or see them for the first time. And I just was like, these are pretty simple. Like, I think a lot of people could benefit from this. And that's where I started to kind of like dip my toes in. And so I learned, um, got like certified in some of these tools, just did more of them as practices for myself. I was already teaching them to my friends, just like on like a small level. And then, yeah, that's where kind of Peak Wellness was born. Awesome. So tell me about what that was like for Peak Wellness to 
you know what, this is something that I think has legs to be my career. Yeah. What steps almost where you're like, okay, I think I got to get a logo. I got to like do this. <laughs> like what, like tell us a little bit what that looked like for you. That's such a good question. Cause like in some aspects I like look back on that time and I'm like, I had a lot of confidence for someone who knew nothing about what they're about <laughs> yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I'm like, would I even have that confidence again? Like just pure conviction. And like, I always joke, like if I had told Ivy, like when I go to this, like fancy business school and if they were like what's your career and I'm like I'm gonna teach meditation classes over zoom they'd be like please leave (laughs) (laughs) that is not a career (laughs) that will never make money that will never be viable um but that's kind of how like you find these gems and startups because nobody's doing it people are like never heard of this before that also equals a gap yes absolutely and it just it started kind of just a little smaller I started teaching at a studio and and I guess I felt like the people were at the studio they had already opted in so I could like show them some mindfulness practices but they already believed in mindfulness and meditation and they already like you're coming to the studio you know you already have a practice of your own and I guess I just felt like the workplace was where we could reach more people faster who have no access to these tools right so we've kind of talked about like this, this notorious life of being a startup or mm-hmm. not being a startup of, of a startup of variable income where, yeah. how am I going to put food on the table? Stresses like that. Were you ever worried that that would trigger something from, from, from your bipolar disorder or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think to some degree, because there could be some perspectives of, I think there's times in your life where you do require a lot of stability Um, It depends on your personality and it depends on kind of just like where you're at in your life. Um, And so there's aspects when you throw yourself into your own business, you're like, well, this maybe isn't the most stable thing I could do. And so um, I think I had enough kind of confidence in in my game plan that I I didn't think I could throw myself into like absolute turmoil. But I was aware that I would need to still maintain structure, still maintain my wellness practices for myself or things could go, you know, badly. For sure. So where did, did you have like this moment, that cool moment of like a proof of concept where, where you either put it out there for the first time and people came running, or did you have that moment where you're like, this is working. This is something that a lot of people are really resonating with. Yeah, I think, so I started the business by just doing mindfulness teaching, like teaching meditations actually on site in person um, in different offices. And one of the things we did, I was so lucky, like I had so many friends that were able to kind of like be able to be like, okay, well you can do one of these presentations at my office for free, I guess. Like that's basically how I got started. And um, one of the first places I went actually was in Toronto to an office at Capital One. And um, it was a colleague of mine friend from school who was like I think we could try this out like do a presentation and it was totally all of the wellness events we do almost always they're like volunteer they're voluntary you shouldn't like force people to you know be well (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) it's usually just like yeah why don't you come by a lunch as a lunch and learn or something like that and so we had no idea like how many people might be there and there the room was too full like not everyone could come in the end like we had set up the room we were like I'm just hoping you know we can be able to fill the seats yeah and we ended up like filling all the seats people were standing it was just wall to wall and I think that showed like there's so much interest in this and especially when you're at work and it's Mm -hmm. during your work day and so I would say that was like a pretty cool yeah maybe proof of concept for us yeah and on both sides there should be interest like I think if you were to survey like a hundred percent or a hundred people and say 
do you want to be well? Yeah. I would say yeah. like probably 95% of them yep. would say yes. Um, and then from the business side as well, mm-hmm. you would want your employees to be well because that helps them from productivity. It helps yep. them with sick leave, disability, yep. um, just outputs and wanting culture, morale, things like that. Absolutely. So there's definitely a market there, yeah? Oh, for sure, yeah. And like there's, there's a couple ways to look at it. I think the most compassionate workplaces, they're looking for how can we support our employees how can we boost morale, boost the culture of well-being at our company? There's also a perspective that I would say is like not the main thing that we like advertise on, but there is a bottom line, you know, kind of calculation you can do when your employees are stressed. The stress-related absences are incredibly expensive to employers. Yep. And so I think even when I started the business about three years ago, that was maybe like one of our bigger, like we'd be like, this is a profit problem for you. This is like your bottom line suffers when people are stressed. And especially since COVID, it's way more of a compassionate lens now of like your people are just having a tough go, just like everybody else. And so what can you support them? For sure. And I think what I've heard you speak before about how companies are now using it as like a competitive advantage that they have a wellness program in place to make sure that they are taking, they taking care of their employees. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick breath and add some further context into what Kayla is talking about. We've talked about the importance of finding wellness opportunities to balance your self-care and your job, but you may be wondering, where do you even get started? I reached out to Chantel Shinbein, a workplace wellness specialist here at Conexus, to give you some details on the building blocks of wellness in the workplace and how to have this conversation with your employer. Here's what she had to say. Sure, I can absolutely answer that question. You know, we often think of wellness as uh, mental health, but it really is so much more. Uh, Overall wellness, uh, I believe, focuses on five pillars of wellness, um, and those are physical, emotional, financial, social, and career. So if you find that you're struggling in any of these areas, it's really important that you talk with your employer to find out what support is available to you within your organization. I think many organizations offer an employee and family assistance program at no cost to employees or their dependents. And often these providers offer really comprehensive tools and resources for individuals at all stages of life. And in talking with your leader, uh, you might also learn about other programs um, such as career coaching, mentorship opportunities, learning and development, uh, physical and psychological support programs, maybe some community involvement that your organization is doing, paid time off, and really the list goes on and on. So be sure to reach out to your leader, your colleagues, your HR team to learn more about wellness programs that are available to you at your organization. Oh, thanks, Chantel. What a warm voice, hey? I could listen to her talk for days. Hopefully this has helped break down some of the intimidation that comes with finding wellness opportunities that work for you and having that conversation with your employer. We're not done with our conversation with Kayla yet, so let's get back to it. It makes a big deal when you are working for an organization that promotes taking a sick day for your mental well-being and like making sure that people know that they don't need to like you know when you're writing an email to say hey team I can't make it in today you feel that pressure to say what your symptoms are a hundred percent yeah yeah if you have a culture that promotes not needing to do that I think that's huge it's huge and that was another thing I would hear in the support groups of people like all the like 
just a kind of web of lies they found themselves in unintentionally because they felt like they couldn't tell people why they were off work or like they had like they were telling some of their they couldn't tell their family members like that they had this diagnosis and it's so that just weighs on you so much for sure so even just to be able to say like one of the terms that uh organizations talk a lot about today that i really really like is like it's you just say i'm just not myself today yeah and it doesn't have to be like I'm not myself. I have clinical depression and this is going on. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like cough, cough, like I'm actually, I have a cold. You're just like somewhere in the middle. And I think there's a grace and a beauty to it where you're just like, I'm not myself today. And everyone totally. knows what that means. And yep. it means just like go a little easier on me or I just need a day off. For sure. Yeah. We like on my team, I know a lot of people say I'm taking the day. Yes. And we don't I love not that. To, yeah. We're not yeah. just saying like, why? Well, why? Like, yeah. yeah. What are you doing? Like, going to see your psychiatrist (laughs) exactly like i think too with covid everybody's like oh or do you have any symptoms or anything like that but like once you realize that it's really not nobody's business or anything like that i think that's great um so tell me about some of the highs and lows of peak wellness so far um and I want to give you some time to brag a bit because you have some (laughs) awesome partners that you're working with like netflix HelloFresh, things like that so break a little bit tell us some highs and lows would love <laughs> to hear highs and lows sure um yeah so I think um probably within the first year of starting the company it was clear I'd be able to move home which was my goal so yeah. move back to Regina um and be able to kind of run the business from here even though we'd be operating in Montreal Toronto and New York that was kind of like my idea um early 2020 that's yeah. where we were operating and we were operating on site so like sending facilitators in those cities I'd manage the business from here and we'd have them, they would represent us and go on site. And so we had just built out our few like first customers, which any business owner knows is like the hardest thing to do, like just getting those first customers. And so, yeah, we had great partnerships in place. And then I always remember like it was March 13th. I know that was a crazy day for so many people. Um, But it was like all my customers like at once, like my three customers that I had being like, you know, we're, our office is closing. Yeah. So like, you're not coming here even if you want to, <laughs> you know, totally, yeah. and there was a little bit of optimism because it was like, we're going to close for two weeks and then like, we'll revisit this. That's what we all thought. <laughs> I remember thinking that like a, um, a vaccine would be done in like four weeks, like in right. time for March madness or something. <laughs> it made no sense. These like trivial things. Like, is it going to be okay by my birthday? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like two years later, we're still in this. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. So that was a low, but like in hindsight, maybe in a way a high for us. I mean, we had to transition to virtual for everything, um, but that ended up allowing us to start to support some of these global clients. So once everyone at home, it's maybe even more important that they had these wellness classes for for their employees. Oh yeah. And we could teach from anywhere. We could teach anyone anywhere. So it was like figuring out like early Zoom days, like just like, can you hear me? Is my mic on? All that kind <laughs> <Totally>. of stuff. <laughs> You're on mute, Karen. Yeah, exactly. we've all been there. Yeah. Like all the little growing pains of like just those like, oh, we didn't toggle on that setting 100%. and it didn't record or yeah. something. Can everybody see my screen? Like all oh, those things. Oh, that, that we was all like hear. my life for like a year, just me <laughs> yeah. like making these classic errors. Right. Um, but yeah, then we transitioned to virtual. We were able to partner with some big, uh, big name clients, but. I always say like some of those clients, the ones that you see on our website, those are like the flashiest names you've heard of. But most of our clients are the companies you've never heard of. They're based out of like who knows where. Right. 
And all they have in common is that their employees are super stressed out for yeah. any reason. And they're not all, there's a lot of stressed out accountants out there. That's one of the main things I've noticed. Okay. <laughs> accountants are like always stressed. It, it really sounds like, yeah, right. it just sounds stressful. We have a lot of accounting clients totally. consulting as well. Yeah. But we've been able to support teachers, nurses, healthcare workers. Um, and so that was a big high for us, I think, as well. Just noticing like it's not always the people at like the big flashy tech companies necessarily. Yeah. And then the highest high I can describe is like, we went a long time. This is like, my employees will laugh about this now. We went for like, we were doing these virtual classes for like at least a year before we ever asked for feedback from anyone. Okay, <laughs> like sure. one of those things is like, a business owner, you look back and you're like, yeah, that would have been smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we never asked for feedback. And like, that is the most valuable information we can get. Right. So like, this is not long ago. This is like a year ago we implemented feedback surveys where yeah. the attendees can start, um, you know, just giving us feedback. And that was like, I would say that's the highest high that we still always ride out. I mean, I'm checking our feedback surveys every single day. And those are the pieces of feedback that are just, uh, yeah, like some of them will like bring tears to your eyes. Because right. like, they'll be like, I'm like 52 years old. I've never heard of this before. I've never done mindfulness before. And that now I've taught it to like all my friends. Yeah. Or like, this has helped me some so much um you know just some of those little anecdotes that you'll hear from people like i'm teaching this to my kids yeah. like this is a practice that my partner and i do together now um from the employee's perspective it's usually them being like i'm just so glad my employer is offering this For sure. and so yeah once we start to collect feedback which we should have done uh if you're starting a business do that yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> um, sure. yeah. but those are the things i think that really like show that we've we found a market and there's people out there that can benefit from these classes. And those are what really like keep us going. Totally. What I love about your classes is that they're so like anyone can do it. Oh and yeah, it's, super it's, easy. it's simple things you wouldn't think about. Like you have even like, even before a meeting, like just asking people to put their, their, their hands on their thighs yeah. and just to feel grounded for totally. a second, take three deep breaths. Yeah. And they're like, I can do that. Like yeah. I don't need this like huge concept of understanding psychology exactly. in order to feel the impact that that has on me immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. So, but I feel like this, your entire story, like anybody listening, I'm sure there's people thinking that misconception of, Oh, this would never happen to me. Like yeah. it must, it must've been a lot of stress for her to, in order to fall into this sort this breakdown, mm -hmm. but like one in five Canadians struggle with mental health. Mm -hmm. Your story just helps does such a great job of humanizing it, but what else can you share that can drive some urgency around prioritizing your mental health, especially in the corporate world? Yeah, I mean, I think like the one in five is such an interesting number because I think we've had that uh, stat for a while now. And I think that was like, that was pre-COVID, right? Yeah. So I think like, I don't know, when I think of one in five now, I'm like, is it one in five or is it like five in five? For sure, <laughs> you yeah. You know, because yeah. there's aspects of it like, one in five will have a diagnosed mental illness um, that like requires clinical treatment, let's say. But I just think the urgency is for each and every person out there now. Like no matter, mental health is kind of like a spectrum. So whether or not you're having like kind of an acute crisis yep. or if you're just like not feeling like you used to or you just know you could feel better. I think the thing about that kind of that stat as well is like you look around and you're like, oh, but like, I don't know, nobody, none of my friends would be that. Or like, I don't think that's like in my family. And once yep. you start sharing things, like, especially if you say like the first time that I kind of made a little social media post about being like, I had bipolar disorder. This was like my yep. experience. 
the number of messages I got from people who like I went to school with or I knew or they're like this person knows this person that's like this is either me or this is my mom or this is my brother and like it's just so many more people than you know and you never know who could be going through it like some of the the deepest darkest lows of mental illness can be covered up so like just because you're at work doesn't mean that person's not having a tough time or I guess what I would say is like just holding that compassion for anybody because it can be anybody it can happen to anyone um and there's like just even if that person is in a low I think what I would say to that person is like you're gonna get back out of the low we don't know how long it's gonna take um but you will get there and so yeah from a corporate perspective I mean again there's kind of like the profitability side where you're just like we need people to be well but I think it's the like true just like human compassion to each other that like this can happen to anyone and just like any other illness it's not a reflection of your worth or your character that was an affirmation I used a lot of like it was really helpful for me early on that was like mental illness is not uh like failure like it's not a personal failure that's what it can feel like totally I just, I guess I did like something wrong. <laughs> for sure. Even if you're having like an anxious day, you're like, what did I do to trigger this yes. for me? Yes. Yeah. Or like, it's because I didn't go to the gym and I didn't make my lunch. Yeah. And you're like so, so hard on yourself. 100% where you could just woken up and just didn't yep. feel like yourself today. Exactly. Yeah. You're so right. Like, I think we say this like stat one in five, but I'm sure if anybody listening to this if I would be shocked if someone said I didn't I haven't struggled with mental health in some aspect in the past two years for sure and you're like where have you been like (laughs) what were you doing (laughs) what island have you been on during COVID can I come there yeah awesome so to wrap up this interview I want to ask you a couple of questions um that kind of ties everything back together so looking back what have you learned about Kayla during this journey um, I've learned that things are a lot less predictable than I thought they were when I was 20. Right. I think there's like, uh, a beauty in that. Um, you know, you actually don't really know what's going to happen, like what's coming up. And, um, I think if you can approach that with some self-compassion, it becomes actually really exciting. And, and, you know, these things can come, they can like pop up in your life when you're least expecting it. Um, but I'll share a quote that, uh, the schizophrenia society uses that I really, really like. And I think if I, I wish I heard this earlier on because something you hear a lot when you're struggling, I think probably with any illness and mental illness for sure is like people kept being like recovery is possible. Like recovery, like if you keep just like do the right things, recovery is possible. And what the schizophrenia society says in their presentations is they say recovery is likely. Awesome. And it's like this tiny little word change, but like possible sounds like the top 10% of people recover from like their mental illness or like the top 10% get to their like normal lives, let's say. Like it's possible that we could win the lottery tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like, it's like aspirational almost. And I think like when you change it to it's likely, and it really is, if you think of like, if your goal is getting back to you know, whatever your goals are for you personally, getting back to work or having a fulfilling life or having a family and relationships, it is likely like, you know, if you, and again, that's with like the proper support systems and care. Um, but it is likely. And I think I love that. I just, I wish I heard that a little earlier because that really was like a game changer for me. I love that. Again, pop culture, 
comes into play here when you're watching Grey's Anatomy or, or mm-hmm. things like that. How many times do you see on TV shows where it's like the elephant case where it's just like too far gone <laughs> yeah. or like, oh my gosh, it's a medical mystery yeah. or something. <laughs> it's a phenomenon. Like we've convinced ourselves that if we go and receive help sometimes yeah. that we are going to be written off or we are going to be like seen as this medical like phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So if you could go back in time and say anything to Kayla in 2014 when she's just going through the scariness and she's coming to terms with with this new diagnosis, what would you tell her? I think before the like mania, I would probably tell like pre-mental illness Kayla like buckle up. Like there's like <laughs> things <Yeah>. coming <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that are like going to derail your plans, but it'll be all right. And I think if it was like really when I was around that diagnosis, if I just, um, I don't know. I don't know if there's like something I could say that would have like changed the way that things happened. I think it all happened in, you know, the time that it took was the right amount of time. I think there's a lot of maybe just something as simple as like 10 years from now, most of this will be funny. Right. <laughs> maybe not all of it, but most of it. Yeah. Um, there's an expression, what is it? It's like... Um, comedy equals tragedy plus time yeah, yeah I like <laughs> and that. I think that was just like so accurate like most of it's pretty <laughs> it's <so> funny <laughs> now <laughs> yeah for sure so maybe that would have been nice to yeah. know you know the deepest depths of like that experience and the most challenging times are mostly funny now for and sure so yeah. that might have been helpful <laughs> yeah as well as recovery is likely and recovery is likely yeah. absolutely love that before we let you go, we're going to ask you some some speed round questions I'm to get to know you. I'm the most nervous about this for some Everybody reason. Everybody is, right? <laughs> like, you know, coming in, you're like, oh, he's probably going to ask me about this sort of stuff. Here, these could come out of I'm like, field. I think I'm just going to blank. You're going to be like, name a song. I'll be like, I've never heard a song. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. You have people here, too, that have messaged me after, like, like what's your favorite song? They're like, ah, so Super Bass by Nicki Minaj. <laughs> and then they text me later and be like, I hate that song. <laughs> I don't know why. That, yeah. Okay. Sounds great. So we'll keep it nice and easy for you to start. Okay. Um, first question. Does your family still really like Pez? Oh my god. <laughs> That's the most niche question and the answer is yes. Yes, awesome. For and for background, I remember going to a house party once at your at your place and walls and walls of Pez dispensers. Are those still up? Oh god, they're still up, yeah. Oh, they're that amazing. That was like my mom's like collection. Like that was like her thing. That is so funny that you remember that. 100%. Although if I was in your shoes, I think I'd remember that too. It was like a museum. <laughs> oh it was God. awesome. And they were like categorized like superheroes, <laughs> cartoon characters, animals. That was something like, yeah, because that like, I don't know. So many people have seen that in growing up. Like, yeah, it was probably just at house parties that people saw that. But yeah. when I like brought my fiance to like my parents' house for the first time, like that's yeah. when you like have stepped away for a little while and you like show <laughs> yeah. that. I'm like, oh, that is a little... Odd. <laughs> yeah. Well, every I feel like every mom has like that collectible. Mine collected like bear, stuffed bears. Like she would come home with like a three hundred dollar stuffed bear, and my dad would be like, "What are you doing?" And you're like, "I'm collecting." I'm collecting. <laughs> Duh. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Second question. Stand up comedy. You used to do it. Uh, yeah. Is that still on the radar for you, or are you kind of stepping away from that now? It's funny. I was saying just the other day to my fiance, I'm like. 
I might do it again. I'd be down to try it yeah. again. <laughs> it was it was really, really fun. I remember you posted a video and I watched it. I'm like, there's another thing Kayla's just naturally good at. <laughs> like, I was almost mad at you that you were good at stand-up comedy. Well, I'll tell you how I started. It'll make you feel better. So I was living in Toronto and I wanted to do Second Cities there. They do like sketch comedy, um, stand-up comedy. They do all these like classes and lessons, improv and all that. And I started actually by taking a sketch comedy class so where you write sketches like as it would be on like Saturday Night right. Live. And like I did, I don't know, I liked creative writing when I was like younger and I like writing. And so I was in this group and it's like level one or like A or something. And we would write these sketches and we'd read them to other people like in our class. And like mine, the yeah. teacher of the class was like, in the nicest way, he was like, you are, like, objectively bad at this. So, like, <laughs> you can, like, pay, like, to go to level B, but, like, maybe you should try something else. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's where I met a girl in that class who had said she had done stand-up classes. And that's where I went and took, like, yeah. my first stand-up class. Awesome. And you were natural <laughs> But if you read period. my sketches, you'd be like, ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this girl is not going to SNL anytime soon. Okay. Uh, next question. First concert. Avril Lavigne. What's interesting here is... I just was at an Avril Lavigne concert last night in Saskatoon. The timing of it is wild. It's uncanny. <laughs> it's uncanny. Yeah. So when was this? This must have been like, I'm, oh, I think I was like in grade nine. So I don't know. You'd have to do the math in on Saskatoon. that one. Was it in Saskatoon? Too? It was in Regina. It was in Regina. Yeah. Awesome. And I went like my, I think my whole family went. Like, I think my mom, my dad, <laughs> me and my sister went. Pack some Pez. <laughs> got in the car. Watched Avril Lavigne. My yeah. mom's going to die laughing when she yeah. hears this question. <laughs> I've, I've, I can't get over the Pez. Like, I remember taking photos being, this is so impressive. That is so funny to me, Mason. And it wasn't dying. even just like Pez, like in one area oh, no. it's like you go upstairs in the bathroom she probably has more now than like when you last saw the collection so i'll send you an update do photo. they still make pez like pez is still a thing that's a good question i can't tell you yes okay. or no on that one we'll get mama kozan on this podcast next and she can give us Ruth an update is gonna know Ruth yeah. will know she okay. will know <laughs> <laughs> love that okay um if you could live in any time period what would it be oh right now for sure right now oh yeah Tell me why. So I think this is a really interesting question. I know there's lots of like romanticism around like past generations. <laughs> I'm not trying to tie it back to my mental illness yeah. or mindfulness, <laughs> but I, this has crossed my mind before. Like my life is what it is because of like modern medicine and therapy. True. And it's crossed my mind of like, like it wasn't that long ago that like, bipolar was so stigmatized like I honestly think my life would be so different so I would choose now I also like all the luxuries yeah. of current life yeah um wi-fi wi-fi <laughs> oh there's been a lot tiktok yeah. like there's some good things in this generation True, I love that <laughs> I wouldn't want to miss out on Good for you. I feel we we do romanticize it. I like I love that quote that uh, nostalgia is a form of bias where you're like, oh, interesting. You're like, oh, the 90s. We love the 90s. Do you remember dial up internet? <laughs> you're like, it was there were problems. There were some <laughs> bad problems in the 90s that we had to get through. All right. Last question. What connects us? I think what connects us is our conversations that we have when we have an open mind. And like one thing just to tie it back one more time for you with mental illness, like something that's been so fascinating and such a learning experience for me has been like, I don't know what my perspectives, like I can't think back to like, or ever know what my perspectives on different mental illnesses would be had I not experienced it myself. Yeah. 
the main thing I can like take away is just like having conversations with an open mind because like I had my own stigmas against like mental illness and all these different things and I think anything I've learned along the road is just like you've got to have an open mind ask open-ended questions um and you'll be connected to anybody awesome I love that one Kayla, thank you so much. I you do I think one of your superpowers is just humanizing. Like whether it is you're talking about mindfulness, whether you're talking about your experience, the the perspective you bring gets leveled up almost just because you make it so relatable. So thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you for your vulnerability and telling a time that was scary for you so many years ago, something that I'm sure people are going to be listening to this, not only be able to support others as they're going through this, but if somebody is thinking as well, I just received this diagnosis, this could be me, you're sparking conversation and it's such an important thing to do. So thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you for letting me share my story, Mason. Of course. Well, that's it for our chat with Kayla and for our season premiere of the What Connects Us podcast. We're just getting started with season six and we've got five more impactful episodes for you. So we'll be back in two weeks for our next episode. If you've taken value from this episode, please do us a favor, hit that subscribe or follow button, leave a review of the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and share the podcast with a friend or on social media. It makes a big difference for us and helps us continue to tell these stories. We'll see you in two weeks. Let's connect then.